So for those of you that are in jobs where your workplace uh, requires an annual review, what's the worst review you've gotten? Better yet, what is it that your coworkers or your boss noticed about you and you were indignant, insulted, not because they were wrong, but because they were right. And you had tried really hard to see if you could cover up that weakness so that no one would notice. And they all noticed. Or maybe you just felt misunderstood. I remember I was going through a season where I was um, part, of a, uh, part of a church. It wasn't here. Um, we were um, in a season where we were trying to take a really intensive look at what was going on um, inside our leadership core and um, in the way that we were uh, operating and, and um, being faithful stewards of God's many gifts. You know what people said about me? said, I, I don't know. I feel like David's always trying to prove something to someone. I said, man, they're right. I feel like I am always trying to prove something to someone that I can do it or I've got it together or that things will be just fine. It's because I was afraid that it wouldn't be. And when you're afraid and you start overcompensating, what they really say is not that, man, David just seems like he keeps trying to prove something to someone. They say, that guy comes across as really arrogant, really proud, if you were to look in the Bible, just behind love, which is mentioned the most in the New Testament, the concept mentioned second most in the New Testament is humility. James even said back in chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This morning, we're looking now at what James sees as logical outworkings of a prideful disposition or sins against humility when we are not walking with humility towards God. We are not walking with humility towards one another. If there was something wrong in your life, would you want to know? I think if you're thinking about a performance review for uh, a place of employment, if there was something you could do better, wouldn't you want to know? Would God grant us ears to hear today 
so that we would heed um, these, these warnings from Scripture. We're to look at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of verse 5. I'd invite you to stand. Beginning in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such a boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who, which, kept, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. And it is given in love. Let's pray. Father, break our hearts. Break our pride. Would we be a would we be a people that that walk humbly with our God. Because this is how you've made us. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Do this, we pray, for the glory of Jesus and the gladness of your people. Amen. If anything, commentators have long struggled with James in trying to figure out not, to, not what he's saying, but why is he saying it? And why does he bring this thought into play? There are two big ideas in our text this morning, and both of these ideas are sins against humility. The first one we'll talk about is warnings against being presumptuous. The second thing we'll talk about is warnings uh, against the prosperous. Now, it should be pointed out, in both of these things, 
that in, in neither instance is James either one condemning planning or is James condemning profit. Neither of those things are of concern for him. But if you remember back in chapter 3, James began to unpack the implications of the gospel lived out here and now, and he addressed it through how we speak. He addressed it through what we do. He said that faith without works is dead. If we're a people who have been, um, who have taken the good deposit of the gospel, as James talks about in James 1.18, if we are a people that have come to God and recognized that we have nothing and he has everything and, we, and, and humbled ourselves and God before him and rested on the promises that God gives more grace, this will have a, this will have a real and material impact in how we live our lives. As the, um, as the teaching begins, James brings us to a point of rhetoric. He's going to uh, ask you a question and expose the faulty thinking going on underneath it. There are three presumptions that we make um, that James is very concerned about. There are three presumptions um, that we have to be very careful uh, to see if they're going on in our, li- in our lives. The first one is this. We presume that our knowledge is sufficient. We presume that our knowledge of ourselves and the world is sufficient. And we forget our ignorance. Look at what James says in verse 13. Come now. This is a, um, these phrases, come now, are a, um, this is a common rhetorical device in, uh, especially in Jewish wisdom literature, um, whereas it's setting up an argument uh, to kind of expose. And so you see this, come now, come now. Um, and so you know that James is kind of, in, um, he's about to tell you some truth. Um, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's the presumption that all, that all plans are fundamentally based on? The presumption that all plans are fundamentally based on is that the world operates as we think it should operate, and therefore, plans should go according to plan. There is an entire cottage industry of planners, organizers, ways to structure and set out your life. Is the Bible against planning? No. No, in fact, Proverbs reminds us that man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. What's James after here? What James is after here is things that are pride, things that are sins against humility. Now, we don't often talk about humility. We're scared to pray for it. That and patience. Just don't. (laughs) 
Someone should write that book. If you want to see your devotional life transform, pray for patience and humility. We're okay with being humble with one another, at least to, to demure to one another. We're, we're okay with being deferential to one another. But James isn't very concerned right now with how we are towards one another. James is really concerned with how humble are you before God. And to say that you can set your plans out with impunity, that you can set your plans out and be confident that they will go and we will do this and we will do that and we will be fantastic. James says you're presuming on knowledge that you don't have. And you're forgetting that you don't know what you don't know. You're ignorant in some of these areas. We presume limitless knowledge. Remember several weeks ago, I said, uh, well, I've said it a lot of times, but I'll say it again because it's worth saying. Be very mindful of the things that you're taking into your, into your head, into your heart, into your soul. The things that will tell you um, that you can have life a certain way. If these things aren't telling you that ultimately you are dependent upon Jesus alone, they are telling you lies. We are living in a day and an age where the possibilities seem endless, where the advancements seem limitless. We've made our own knowledge king, whether it's our philosophy, our technology, or maybe it's just our sense of control. We've made all of these things gods unto themselves. We think that we can plan a year in advance and come and go as we please, but we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. This is the first thing. We presume on our knowledge. Second thing, we presume on our invincibility. He goes on, he says, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We presume on our invincibility and we forget our frailty. We may think that life is something that we control. In years past, it was the, uh, it was the veneration of modern medicine. We can cure all, we can fix all, we can control all with the right pharmaceuticals. There's been a healthy pushback that maybe, just maybe, that modern living, through, modern living through modern chemistry is not all it's cracked up to be. But then there's other things that have stepped into their place, right? Whether it is fitness, whether it is essential oils, whether it is natural supplements, all of it beguiles a sense of control that if I do the right things, I can ultimately control my life and my destiny. Now, I'm not saying at all that we should not pursue good and healthy living. But if you're believing the lie that that, that adds a single moment to your life or a single bit of security to your plans, stop. It doesn't. 
All of these things are in their own right either avenues towards independence from God, I'm fine, I've got this, leave me alone, or avenues for humble dependence on God. Third thing, um, we presume on our independence, but really we are a dependent people. Look at verse 15. He says here, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We have a tendency to look to God in the big moments of crisis or choice in our lives. In fact, uh, it, it's really just when we feel the weight of our inability to do anything, we run to God. So what is James actually after here? He's actually after all of the ways that we have, uh, we have concocted mechanisms and means to not feel our inability before God and before one another right? Whether it's in what you know or in what you do, the plans that you make, the successes you enjoy, the technology, the luxuries, anything that you put in your life, we are, in, we are amazingly skilled at creating all sorts of avenues so that we don't have to, at the end of the day, feel our dependence on God. We don't have to feel our inability to handle life. And so James says, here's a corrective Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Because the reality of it is, our life is not made up of those big moments of crisis or choice when we feel the weight of our inability. More often than not, we have instead countless little moments throughout our days to occupy our time and carry our thoughts. So what do we do? This is not some sort of magic incantation that you say before you go out and do what you were going to do anyway. It's a disposition of the heart. It's a disposition of one who knows I am, I am ignorant and I am frail, and I am needy, and I am dependent, and I can't put another foot in front of my body. Plans are a funny thing. Years ago, a man by the name of Dr. Jack Arnold, who was the pastor emeritus at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida, was back from doing missions work in Africa. And he stood in the pulpit in, um, in January of 2004. And he began preaching. 
And he was going right along, and um, he, he reached a, a climactic point in his sermon, and he, said, he quotes Paul, and he says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I don't know about you, but when God calls me home, that's it. I'm out of here. It was at that moment that he had a massive heart attack and dropped dead in the pulpit right after saying that. Needless to say, those looking on were shocked. We had been told in the worship ministry that if there was ever some sort of disruption in the, uh, in the church, we should just go up and start a hymn. My staff partner called me because I was on vacation that morning visiting my family and said, you're not going to believe what just happened. What happened? Jack died in the pulpit. It didn't feel like the right moment to go up and start playing a song. (laughs) Of course, the media picks up on this type of thing as an oddity, right? Pastor preaching about heaven dies in the pulpit. But for Jack, one of the things that he knew was this verse and this reality that he could not put one foot in front of the other unless the Lord willed. See, it's not a bad thing to make plans. The bad thing is if you think that somehow your plans insulate you from things going on in the world or worse still, insulate you from God. And James has said, do you hear? Do you hear the tendency in your own voice? Do you hear the tendency in your own plans to find yourself where you don't feel your deep inability, where you don't feel your deep need? You carry on with life as usual, and you only run to God when things are now out of your control. Do you not realize that all things are out of your control, that all things are not not possible apart from him, and that you cannot draw another breath unless God himself says, draw another breath? No, the Bible doesn't forbid planning. Planning is entirely proper as long as we confess, remind, and reinforce in our own lives and in each other's lives that God is sovereign. and We are ignorant, frail, and dependent people. The writer of the Hebrews says, and these things we will do if God permits. I remember years ago listening to a a cassette tape of John Piper's sermon, Doing Missions and Dying is Gain. And he quotes this text from Hebrews. And he kind of intones the the reaction that must have been um, for those people and might still be for us. Do you mean that God may not permit? Yes, make your plans. Yes, um, look to the Lord for wisdom, but don't be surprised if God interrupts your plans. It's a good opportunity to ask, were my plans aligned with God's purposes? 
We bring godly wisdom to our planning and pray that our pursuits align with his purposes. When they do, praise him. And when they don't, praise him. It's the planning that says, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want, that James has some strong words for in verse 16. As it is, there's that word again, you boast in your arrogance. You boast in your pride. All such boasting is evil. It's not just, well, I'm not living as good a life of a Christian life as I ought to be. It's not, well, you know, I guess I should pray a little more. It's if you are presuming that anything apart from this moment that God has given you is going to happen apart from him, that is boasting in knowledge that it's arrogant. And James says it's evil. Anything that we would do that would try to put us in positions of independence rather than dependence isn't neutral. It's dangerous. And that can be a good thing. That can be your marriage. That can be your kids. That can be your job. That can be your bank account. That can be your hobbies. That can be your idle thoughts. As Steve mentioned earlier, that could be the stuff of your dreams or the stuff of your nightmares. What is it that's going to take away the life that I want? What is it that's going to give me the happiness that I need? Anything that will functionally try and give you a position of independence rather than dependence is not neutral, it's dangerous. And James says, do you apprehend, do you actually see the danger that's in front of you? Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. But even in saying and doing the right things, by the way, you can still mess it up. This seemingly scathing verse seems out of place, but, but here's the grace of it here. Um, for the overachiever who pridefully says, see, I kept the law. I said, if God permits, I'll do my part. If God permits, the plan will come out. You, you still have fallen short. And that's good news. God gives more grace. Humble yourself and run to him. And, and for those who gave up, for those who said, I can't even, I know the right thing to do, and I, I can't even do it, so I'm, I'm not even going to try to do it. Don't give up. You know what God commands. You know that he is not an evil master, but a loving father. Walk in imperfect obedience. Here's a quick litmus test for all of us who are saying, uh, saying I'm a pretty obedient person. I'm a pretty, uh, you know, I'm, I've got the whole Christian life thing going well. Um, Jack Miller, years ago, uh, in his book, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church, asked this question. Because you know that you are loved by God and because you love Jesus, Name one thing recently in your life 
that you have stopped doing because you love Jesus? Just one. Name one thing in your life that you have stopped doing because you love Jesus. Or to put it a different way, name one thing in your life right now that you have started doing because you are loved by God and in turn because you love him. What is one thing that is different now? Maybe it wasn't this week. Maybe it was last week. Or was it last month? Or was it last year? Or can you remember? See, the, this, is not, this is not a got you moment. This is not a, this is not a um, let, let's make you feel bad moment. It's, a, it's asking for an honest, grace-based as, um, um, assessment of our lives Are we actually hearing the word of God and are we not just hearers of the word but doers of the word also? You see, that's what James is asking us. I don't want to know if you're a Christian in theory. I want to know if by the fruit of your life it could be evident that Jesus is at work in you and that you are being changed and conformed and shaped into the image of the Son whom God loves. If you can't answer the question recently, what's the one thing I've stopped doing or the one thing I've started doing, not because I feel like I have to earn God's love, but because I have God's love. Not because I'm trying to impress God, but because I have the smile of heaven in my life. If you can't answer that question, what are you going to do about it today? What's the spirit prompting in your heart even now that you've said, no, I don't really need to pay attention to that right now. I'm fine because James says the warning for us is whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. But the good news is God is in the business of remaking sinners. Because he sent Jesus because he loved you. James seems to change a gear at this point in chapter 5. Many have looked at chapter 5, especially in the, verse, the first um, six verses, and said that um, James clearly did not like wealthy people. Well, you have to remember that in this day and age, um, largely um, wealth was acquired through the acquisition of property, That property was generally agriculturally based. Therefore, to increase your wealth, you had to have bountiful harvest and increase your property holdings. But it's not as if there wasn't wealthy Christians, right? If you look back at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 10, he talks about people who have means, who are believers there. James has harsh words, as does the rest of Scripture, for people who would use material status as a means of oppressing others. Um, it's kind of like the last straw against gospel humility. Um, 
Believers aren't necessarily in positions to oppress others, others or even necessarily inclined to do so. But there's another aspect that presents itself here. Um, we can use our wealth to indulge ourselves and once again not feel the weight of our inability and not feel the weight of our need before God. We can use our wealth as a means of indulging ourselves and making us happy rather than worshiping God and advancing the kingdom. So consider as we look at chapter 5. You see a progression. Um, in verses 11 and 12, back in chapter 4, James is talking about slandering people. And remember a few weeks ago I said, we're going to believe the best about people rather than presuming the worst. And in believing the best about people, we're actually going to speak about people as if we believe the best about them rather than presuming the worst about them and then telling that story. Second thing, um, well, so the, the sin of slander is often a private sin. Um, presumption, which we just talked about, is often um, more thoughtless than malicious. People that are being presumptuous aren't like, aha, I'm going to be presumptuous. It's just more like, oops, that was presumptuous. Oppression, however, is very public. Uh, And what James is speaking of is systemic abuses that destroy societies at large. And isn't that the case, by the way, um, whenever it is wealthy people um, using positions of power to oppress others or people of, of wealth and of affluence who insulate themselves from the needs of others to pursue their own happiness rather than uh, the gladness of others and the glory of God. So again... We're going back to some of the language of the prophets of old. But come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. It actually sounds like a a verse back in Amos that he might be uh, alluding to there. Um, The warning of the Bible here um, is not against wealth. It's against um, those whose appetite for wealth cannot be satisfied. If you're a Christian... Your satisfaction is ultimately in God. But it is also possible to flirt with other sources of satisfaction while still saying, I'm satisfied in God, but... And then flirt with other sources of satisfaction. And James says, this is, um, this is not good. <laughs> Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. We should heed the warnings of the spiritual adultery that could come from an unchecked appetite for wealth. Verses 2 and 3 reminds us that all wealth is transitory, fleeting, and easily spoiled. Um, Elsewhere in Scripture, you see the Apostle Paul showing that our wealth should be used to, uh, to meet basic needs for food and covering, to enjoy, and to be generous to others. You can see him talking about, about that in 1 Timothy 6. Right? So for people saying, oh gosh, that, you know, I can never enjoy the wealth that I have. No, you enjoy the wealth that you have. But let that, let, let that land on a list of priorities appropriately so that your needs are being cared for, you can enjoy it, but that ultimately the reason that you have wealth is so that we can be generous to other people. In other words, wealth is given as a means, not an end. Wealth can make us 
happy, but that's its secondary purpose. Its primary purpose is to serve others and point them to Jesus. Whenever we use wealth for our own happiness and wholeness, it's here that we should hear the pride that's popping up again. This is mine. All that I have is mine, and I'm going to enjoy it. And it better not go away, and it better not diminish, because I'm happy right now. Again, it's a sin against humility. It is a, um, it is a check um, when we use wealth for our own happiness and wholeness. Um, there's a pride in our own individuality and our isolation, and we should heed the rebuke of James. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, verse 4 is specifically where James begins to address this issue now, not only of the, the problems that wealth can create, but also now people who are systemically using their influence and their wealth as a means of oppressing others. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Because there is a future um, judgment coming, we are called as God's people to live in the present in light of our future reality and hope. God hears the cry of the poor. The poor cry out and God hears them. It's precisely their being subject to injustice and the rich person who sits in relative indifference to their plight that draws James's pen here. What is our role as God's people in terms of seeking justice? That's a word that's thrown around a lot. I'm a big fan of definitions. I like to know what words mean when we're talking about them, so we're using words in the same way. So let me try and uh, give you an illustration of what I think um, justice as in terms of the role and responsibility of the Christian looks like. I'll use it by borrowing from an old adage, right? Give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day. Now, giving the man a fish, this is a, a, a ministry of relief ministry. Sometimes you've got to help someone, whether they're on the side of the road, whether they're coming to a food pantry, sometimes you have to help them, and that is okay. A relief ministry is not a bad thing, but there's more than that. Give a man a fish, you will feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, and you'll feed him for a lifetime. Sometimes we actually have to work at, at developing people so that they can have the basic skills and competencies. Again, before the face of God, all these things we shall do, if God shall permit, 
We do these things before the face of God so that people can also uh, begin to get out of these cycles of poverty and injustice and towards a place of more health and wholeness. But I'm going to add a third component to this old adage that wasn't part of the original one. Figure out why the fish in the lake are dying and fix it. That's what justice is. What's happening when you can't even get someone to the lake for them to fish because there's no fish for them to catch? Whether they know how to fish or not makes no difference if the fish are uncatchable, if the fish are dead. Figure out why the fish in the lake are dying and fix it. This is what justice is. This is what um, people are called as Christians to do. And not all Christians, by the way, but some, some who do have positions of influence, positions of authority, ways that they can get involved and figure out how to bring God's justice and God's mercy to God's people Because, in fact, we're not insulated. Because, in fact, we're not isolated. Because, in fact, we are living both before the face of God and one another. Because our wealth is not just to cover our basic needs. It's not just for our enjoyment. It is also to live generously before other people. It is what happened in Acts chapter 2, by the way. They had all things in common. And no, I'm not trying to proof text here and make a case for some sort of of, of, uh, communist type society where wealth is redistributed. I am not talking about that. I am talking about God's people taking care of God's people so that the world would see that there's something different among God's people and the glory of God and the, the gospel of God would go out to the nations. That's not wealth redistribution, by the way. That's God's people living as God's people, reflecting the character, the nature, and the heart of God. Because what did God do? God generously went into the poorest place he could, our world. And he gave of his riches. He gave us his son. And he sought us in our weakness, and he sought us in our filth, and he sought us in our lack of deserving And he rescued us so that we would be glad and find our gladness ultimately in him. Those who do have influence and do have a voice to not use it in favor of comfort or due to callousness is pride, not humility, according to James Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. (laughs) In verse 6, look, if murder, defacing the image of God by taking its life is the worst offense, taking a righteous person's life who does not resist is the worst of the worst. So does James mean literal murder here? Probably not. But by withholding wages, by allowing injustice to perpetrate, to not see why fish are dying in the lake, it is as if murder is happening at the hands of God's people. So what do we do? Well, we've talked about two very different things this morning, but they have both flowed out of the same 
they both flowed out of the same head of the river. Presumption and prosperity are both avenues for God's people to walk in indifference and in isolation from God and one another by saying, I've got this, my plans are good. I've got this, my table is full. It's a way for us to find our independence from God. How do we keep our plans in such a way that we remain focused on God, his provision and his grace? Um, We bring our plans before the Lord and hold them loosely. And that's not just like when you first sat down in your day timer and wrote down what your plan was going to be. That's a continual going back to God, this is yours, not mine. Are our plans being put in place so that our love for God would deepen and his kingdom would advance? Is that how your family plans? My family plans like this. Oh my gosh, we have to put a plan together. Would it be that God's people would be mindful enough about our plans that we would say, and what I'm doing, and what I am doing right now being put in place so that my love for God, my family's love for God would deepen and his kingdom would advance? Are we structuring our wishes and wants around what will maximize the glory of God in our lives? Or are we structuring it around what is going to make us happy and give us the most warm memories down the line? Psalm 127 reminds us that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Unless God is in it, it is doomed to fail. Therefore, we should be reminded that whatever we do is a gift from God. If we're successful in our business, it's from God's kindness. If we achieve something great, we can be mindful to ask if God did not guide our desires and nudge us towards that godly aspiration. When we think about wealth and gain, when you think about prosperity and everything else, why are you pursuing wealth and gain? Is it to spend it on pleasures for yourself? Is it being acquired justly or unjustly? Have you asked yourself if you are rightly generous and wise in your planning and saving as you are in your prosperity and spending? Are we using our gifts and our wealth to advance the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, both the spread of the gospel and the spread of the justice of God? Do we ultimately plan our lives and enjoy the prospering of our hands as if we are living in the last days? Would that we would not live as the godless rich, as James described, who grasp, hoard, and indulge. Would that it would be that we would live as stewards of our time, our plans, our talents, and our treasures humbly before the face of God for his glory and the gladness of people that God permits us to serve. How do you do that? You can't apart from Jesus. Because unless he is your delight and unless he is the one to whom you are bringing all the things that would otherwise distract you and detract from his glory and your gladness, it won't work. But he gives more grace. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Would God 
graciously, generously humble us so that today might be the day that we stop doing or start doing something because we love God and we know we're loved by him.